If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom And they can't take that away Lovely to see you. As always, the theme tune always gets our emotions going. And I'm very grateful for uh, Michael hosting the show beforehand. And also just listening to what Dan Bongino says and a reminder of the of the fight that we are in, where various people have called us conspiracy theories over the last few years, called us liars, etc., etc. And unfortunately, everything that we have talked about is unfolding before our eyes. As you can see, it's not Dan Happel. No man can fit in that person's cowboy boots. I cannot fit in my dear friend Dan Happel's cowboy boots. So it's Mark Sutherland. I am speaking to you from the UK. I have the privilege in a minute of introducing to you another UK guest where we're going to talk about the green issues. We're going to talk about the climate cult, but more, more importantly, to talk about Neil McRae's latest book, and he will introduce himself in a minute and talk about that. But I just uh, just thank you for this. And then in the second half, I um, I have got uh, Felicia Conodo, who is a J6 prisoner, and uh, she will be telling us her story as we lead lead into that. So it's going to be quite a ride. So without pinpointing, we're in the UK. Thumper is on the other side of the pond. And we're all in various states, various parts of the world, and we're using this incredible technology to have a conversation, to raise awareness, to inform people. At times, we're not going to agree with each other, but free speech and debate is important because we have to have that debate to gain knowledge. So I just thank you for that. Neil, my friend, I hope you are unmuted. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm extremely grateful. I love the background of a traditional, um, I think, fireplace scene in uh, in jolly old England. So, uh, so thank you very much, sir. How are you? Very well, thanks, Mark, and uh, thanks for having me on today. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, as I've said. I've, it's the it's the wonderful thing where you you come on and then suddenly Zoom wants to do a new update and then it knocks out your microphone and all this kind of grief and then poor uh, poor Thumper is going. Um, I know I've received your emails, but I'm sending back to you and they're bouncing back and it's all of this. So the wonderful wonderful thing about live live radio, as I'm sure you know as well, within your broadcasting conversations, that it certainly keeps you keeps you on your toes. Neil, the um, 
the whole issue of the climate cult, the whole issue of Agenda 21, Agenda 30, is a subject that is extremely passionate and well-known to the normal host of this show, Dan. Dan is actually um, the Red Pill Expo conference, as you may be aware of, which I... Bit of a bit of a plug here, which I found myself um, at last summer with a mutual contact of ours, which is uh, Kate Shimanari. I found uh, Kate was speaking there, so I found myself there. So in the past, they've had illustrious speakers such as Lord Moncton, and you may be fully aware of uh, Lord Moncton and his views. And Lord Moncton was, of course, Margaret Thatcher's advisor in regard to, I would say now, green in, green issues and the and the environment. Neil, could you introduce yourself? I know that you had a background in, I think, uh, mental health lecturing at King at King's College. Could you just introduce yourself, say where people can find you, and thank you again. Yes, so I was at King's College London, which is one of the more prestigious um, universities in, in the UK and, in fact, the world. Uh, and I was there until about two and a half years ago, so I was there for about 20 years, laterally as a senior lecturer in mental health. And I, I felt that I was in the belly of the beast uh, working at a university because of the increasing uh, indoctrination and uh, overwhelming imposition of the woke agenda, but you also have the green agenda going on. And I wrote a book uh, three years ago with uh, Robert Alds of the, yes. the Bruges Group, who you and I know very well, Mark, and that was called Moralitis, a Cultural Virus. And this was about the, the woke uh, ideology and how that stemmed from uh, cultural Marxism going way back to the 1920s. And it's the same with the green uh, agenda. Um, that, that People think that these things are fairly recent. I mean, when I was at school, I didn't get anything about the, the climate crisis. I didn't get anything, that, or any of this woke madness either. Uh, and, and so we tend to think that these are things that came about really just over the last... Uh, two or three decades, but actually both the green agenda and the woke agenda came about really at the same time, back in the 1920s, long, long before people were aware that these were going to be used as instruments. I was laughing when you said earlier, Mark, that um, yeah, we're, we're accused of being conspiracy theorists. Um, I'm an unashamed conspiracy theorist now because there really is conspiracy is going on. And uh, what I've done with the book, my new book, Green in Tooth and Claw, is I've charted the, you know, the, the historical background to the, the, the ecological uh, agenda. And, uh, uh, you know, the woke and the green are, are two sides of the same coin. They're both being used for the same overall purpose run by the same globalist conspirators. The um let, let's explore let's um let's go down this total rabbit hole because um when I it's it's interesting because I've got I'm not don't want to take the heat off you because I want this book. 
James Dellingpole's book, um, yeah. which is which is rather interesting because, as he calls this, the watermelons, but it's there for a reason because of the Marxist, the red Marxist um, agenda on the mm. on the uh, on the inside. Um, what when you go back in history, and we look at books like I think Silent Spring in the late sixties, um, we look about population bomb, the greening of the greening of America, and you quite rightly allude to the, the this softening up, isn't it? This slowly softening up of pushing this agenda. What I find, I want to know what you think of this. I find this fascinating where. Patrick Moore, who started Greenpeace, I think it's Patrick Moore who's one of the founders of that, and his what he talks about now, where he turns around and says, "Well, Greenpeace turned from an environmental uh, group into a human being hating uh, hating group." And I mean, I'm putting words in his mouth. And of course, then we've got the World Economic Forum and all the rest. I'm not saying any of this to show off. I am passionate about this within my own limited knowledge. So talk about your book, Neil. So you talked about going back to history in the 1920s. Well, where where does it start from, from your understanding? Yes, well, if I could first say that I'm glad you mentioned the book Watermelons by James Dellingpole, because in, in a way, I mean, I don't have the standing of James Dellingpole, but in a way, my book is, is a continuation um, from his, written back in 2012. Because what James did is he, he looked at climate change, the, the, the claimed climate crisis, as a cultural phenomenon. It's not a scientific phenomenon. It's got the pretense of, of science, but it's not. It, it, it's a, it's a quasi-religious mm. cult. Now, go back to... Let's go back to the mid 19th century, and I'm going to breeze through this very quickly, uh, Mark. Um, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, um, that led to some real transformation in humankind, in how we saw ourselves. Um, firstly, if you believe the theory of evolution by Charles Darwin, as most of the intelligentsia came to believe it, then it showed that Holy Scripture was not factually accurate that the world was millions millions of years old and not the um you know several thousand as in as in the bible and it also more significantly removed the special status of human beings so we, we were just evolved animals like every other um, creature on earth now there was a principle of evolution which is survival of the fittest but what was happening with uh, the industrialized societies, particularly Britain, where the Industrial Revolution started, was that there was a massively increasing working class population that was needed for the, the, the factories. But there were obviously economic downturns at times, people were unemployed. There was a lot of crime. There was a lot of alcoholism, a lot of disease, a lot of problems in those manufacturing towns. But the population was increasing rapidly and the ruling class started to worry they started to fear that eventually they'd be overwhelmed by the uh, by the working class which was which had a burgeoning trade union labor movement 
And so the ruling class who, who, who looked down at this as a great unwashed, if you like, as uh, almost like subhuman, really, as a, as a, we had this concept of social Darwinism, that society was, um, was in a sort of negative state of evolution. And so something had to be done. So Charles Darwin's close relatives, who became Sir Francis Galton, founded the Eugenics Society. And uh, eugenics really became very, very prominent in the intelligentsia, it, it, you know, it, it, everyone in, in, in academe and in the literary figures and uh, political leaders, they were all talking the language of eugenics. And then we had the First World War, which arguably was not really started by um, uh, someone shooting Archduke um, Ferdinand, right, yeah. in, in, yeah. you know. Uh, it's not really a satisfactory explanation for millions and millions of young men uh, dying on the Western Front with, 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 with the French, the Germans, and the British uh, generals, you know, just pushing more and more men uh, over the top to inevitable slaughter. You know, I, I believe that the First World War was, a, was the first major exercise of eugenics. But after the First World War, you had um, some policies, in, particularly in the U.S. In California, for example, had a sterilization program. And that was initially for uh, feeble-minded was the, was the language of the time, uh, particularly young women, to stop really to stop procreation of um, uh, socially undesirable uh, human stock, and, and that was kind of taken a bit further by the Nazis in Germany. Now, what then happened, Mark, is that such was the revulsion for um, what went on with. Um, the, um, uh, the, the, the Mengele and the Nazi experiments and everything that went on um, uh, under Hitler, that there was a great distaste for eugenics. It could no longer be spoken about um, publicly. Julian Huxley, the, the brother of Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World, he was appointed as director of UNESCO, uh, 1948, I think. And in his sort of opening salvo, Julian Huxley said, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, he didn't actually use these words. Basically, he said, eugenics is dead. Long live eugenics. Right. And so what happened is over the 1950s and going into the 60s, they developed this phenomenon of ecological doom. And then I'm going to rush forward to 1968 because I fixed that in the book as Anno Domini of the, uh, the green uh, quasi-religious cult. Uh, most people, uh, Mark, remember 1968 as a year of um, popular emancipatory movements, civil rights in the US, the French students uh, rioting, um, the, the ascent of second wave feminism, gay rights, and so on. And, and that's how the establishment wants us to remember 1968. <laughs> they really want us to remember the 60s, uh, it, it, you know, with the right message. Actually, 1968, behind the scenes, two much more important things happened. One was, and you've mentioned this already, Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, which predicted that uh, humanity was facing 
uh, uh, catastrophe within within um, ten years or so. You know, it was even more dramatic than Al Gore's um, an inconvenient truth, and it's <laughs> and even more wrong than than his than his um, predictions. But um, it, it had a really great um, influence, and alongside that, the, the Rockefellers founded the Club of Rome, and the Club of Rome is. You know, we all know about these globalist organizations like the World Economic Forum. Um, everyone knows about that. Uh, you know, many, many people know about others like the Bilderberg Group and the Trilateral Commission. But actually, the most important one of all is the Club of Rome, because it's that organization that profoundly uh, uh, influenced and completely tuned the United Nations to focus not on preventing war, which is what it was felt the United Nations would be about. Uh, no, it was about uh, tackling this claimed, contrived um, climate crisis. And that's been developing ever since to, to get to the current um, stage where we're actually got the, the, you know, the tightening ratchet of uh, net zero and um, uh, and other supposedly green um, policies. How how did you survive in university land with these views? Then then Neil, I mean, I'm saying mm -hmm. this slightly tongue in cheek, and I, I will also say that um, on a personal level, you know, I, I come at things from a as a Bible believing Christian as a from a biblical worldview. That's my worldview, and looking at Darwin, I've always found interesting because Darwin's. Uh, wasn't it his bulldog was Henry Henry Huxley, and of course Henry wasn't he the grandfather of Julian and Aldous Huxley, and then you and I again are called conspiracy theorists. No, everything we've said is true because those conspiracies are coming true, and we're truthers. And when we point this out, so would when he became head of UNESCO, does that mean he then um, he is totally up for transhumanism? and pushing all of that agenda, Neil, as well. Everything that we are seeing unfolding, where you and I are called nutters and we're not, is is happening. Because I thought he was pushing then a, 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 um, a transhumanism agenda as well. Yes, I mean, I don't know how much Julian Huxley would have known uh, that you know, this idea of transhumanism would, you know, making everything synthetic apart from, because what they want, of course, is a two-tier society where the, the the nobility, if you like, the, the yeah. master class will continue yeah. to live human lives. They will continue to eat meat and fish. They'll continue to go on holiday. They'll continue to enjoy the countryside. But they want a synthetic, totally controlled existence for the rest of humankind. Um, but, but, we tend to know, I mean, when I wrote Moralitis uh, with Robert Olds, that was obviously focusing on the, um, the sort of subversive ideology that stemmed from cultural Marxism, which began in the 1920s. But a, a very important uh, body that started in actually 1919 in New York, uh, became big in the 1930s, was called Technocracy Incorporated. Mm. And Technocracy Incorporated basically described, even though they didn't have the technological advances then, nowhere near it, they didn't even have a computer back then, but Technocracy Incorporated 
um, sets out the fundamental mission of dispensing with democracy, dispensing with debate, dispensing with free speech, dispensing with politics, dispensing even with ideology, and having society run by engineers um, who would be uh, uh, you know, doing what the elite want to maintain um, and um, uh, 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 ensure uh, total control of population and resources. I, uh, I need to introduce you to a Canadian friend of mine, a dear friend of mine uh, called Carl Chigrib, who wrote this book, Game of God. And this, again, it's like another addition, I think, to yours. And um, I want to slightly take it, you said, trying to, where do I put down books when you're doing a middle of a, a live broadcast, but let's do that. Um, I want to draw, it's very interesting that you brought up Al Gore's, Al Gore's name. Um, I'm trying not to spit at the same time, frankly, without <laughs> sounding too rude. But I, um, I found myself at the Parliament of World Religions in Chicago last summer doing research. Um, it is, uh, it's where NGOs meet the occult, meet uh, climate change, meet stop oil, meet nutbags, basically, lunatics. Mm. And I went to a seminar where I sat opposite Corrine Gore, which is Al Gore's daughter. Um, I went. I deliberately went there to say that I could show off to people like you that I've actually sat opposite her or the, the nearest to a gore in that sense without trying to put your hands around their neck and throttle them. Um, <laughs> but what was fascinating in there was when she was talking about, you know, divesting of oil. Um, she runs some theological society or whatever, which is another issue in itself. Um because it may be the Parliament of World Religions, they can call itself that, but the only the only uh, faith that's not resented, not represented properly is followers of Jesus. But that's another subject. But it's the occult practices, etc., of what they're pushing um, within within this within this cult. Um, what was fascinating was to meet and see these NGOs, Neil, who know nothing. They live to me in a total bubble world of nonsense. And I'm looking at them and turning around to dear friends that were there. There were 11 of us that were attended doing research and saying, uh, this is lunacy. If we get rid of oil, we get rid of coal, we get rid of all of this. And I want to hear what you think. Where does this take society? I already know in that where does it take society and i'm putting it within the british context because and to say for a for all americans watching i constantly say this as a reminder the uk fits into texas nearly two and a half two and three quarter times that's to give you an idea of the continent of america and how big it is um where are, where are we going when we are paying so much money for our energy? Could you paint a picture of the energy crisis that we are facing in this country and what, and what we are now having to deal with and what these natters want to do, the fact that they're taking farm... I sent you an article this morning that was on the, uh, the mm -hmm. uh, Conservative Woman, a fantastic website, where they 
taking buying farmers land all of those issues are going on in america as you know bill gates is one of the biggest land owners of private land in america what do you could you paint a picture of where the uk is going at the moment yeah so this really is very very serious i mean I, i'm not exaggerating when i say this is a battle for the future of the human race. And it's a battle between um, the ordinary human beings and this uh, predatory masterclass that wants to destroy everything in our culture, our society, our institutions, our faith, flag, and family. They want to destroy it a lot. And they're doing it through using both of those um, programs, the, the, the program of cultural Marxism and woke ideology, and uh, the, the climate crisis. Where do I see it going? Um, that depends. I mean, I, I always like to think as a, a glass is half full rather than glass is half empty. I hear. Um, but, it, you know, it, it really is a, a very dystopian future that we're facing. Now, psychological experiments have shown before um, COVID, but we're frequently um, cited during the COVID regime when we had those unprecedented lockdowns and mass vaccinations. So um, psychologists have shown that around 5 to 10, maybe 15% at most of society are real critical thinkers, because most people aren't. The vast majority of society is pretty much unthinking. And there's not much difference there between the lesser educated or uneducated people and the people with high levels of educational qualifications. Most of them are not critical thinkers. And that's why, you know, most doctors and nurses, for example, just believed the COVID uh, narrative and, and why politicians believe in this net zero um, thing that they're, you know, taking part in um, imposing. So, I, in the book, what I've done is I've d d just done this fairly simple pyramid because I'm often asked, you know, any conspiracy theorist like uh, <laughs> like you and I, we're asked, well, well, how could they really get together and do this? And, and a more important question is, who's they? And that's a difficult question to answer, right? Yes. But if you look at my pyramid... So at the bottom of the pyramid, the big, wide, lower stratum is your ordinary uh, people just getting on with their lives, you know, generally just, um, uh, OK, if they say so, there's a climate crisis and we need to sacrifice certain things. But, you know, just, just surviving, really. Above them, you've got the professional managerial bureaucratic class, right? And at that level, you've got what I see as full compliance, but partial awareness. So if you imagine a doctor in the COVID regime, a doctor cannot be unaware that they're doing things during the COVID regime which are not right, you know, depriving people of treatment, um, not honouring consent, um, uh, you know, just um, managing... Um, uh, people onto end of life care when they, you know, it, it, when they didn't really need it. it, it it's there were so many terrible things that were not in COVID. It's impossible that doctors couldn't have known that this is not really what we should be doing. 
but they were fully compliant. They showed themselves to be conformists, and of course they continue to get their their pay and their their pensions and their 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 you know professional position is maintained. It's you know it's a place of privilege, isn't it? Mm. But they're only partially aware of what's really going on. At the next level up, you've got, oh, and I'd include um, kind of what we call in the UK, we call them backbench MPs, politicians, who are not like in the, the cabinet, but, um, you know, they're, they're, um, they're representatives of their... When, when if people in the US, if, they're, if you're watching, you sometimes watch our Parliament TV and you will see all these green seats and there's one side here and there's another side here and they're all shouting at each other and then there's the speaker at the other end, so a description. And what Neil is saying is the members of parliament, not military police, because that's the only definition you have in the States for MPs. It's always a running joke. So what you will have is then it's tiered. So if you're on the front benches, you're in the cabinet, so to speak, or if you're around the prime minister. But as Neil was pointing out, there's 630 members of parliament or something like this. And mm. so the others are then spread out, but they don't have a role within government, but they are to represent the people or their constituency. Sorry, I've just... Yes, no, no, that's right. And, and I would say that those um, backbench members of parliament um, and similarly local government councillors they would be at the same kind of level as the doctors and nurses, as would your, um, your your celebrities who are sometimes used to like push the vaccines or push net zero. Um, people in uh, uh, not quite the top levels of institutions, but um, at, at sort of managerial and the sort of well-paid levels, right? But above that, we've got the 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 next stratum, which is a lot fewer people. And that's your uh, political leaders. Um, so take, for example, um, in the UK, we've got um, Rishi Sunak as the prime minister, and we've got Keir Starmer as the, uh, the head of the opposition, Labour Party. Keir Starmer is also a member of the Trilateral Commission, globalist yes, organisation. And, uh, and the Fabian Society. And the Fabian Society. And at that level, at that level, uh, people have got what I see as full awareness, partial compliance. Now, so that means that for, if you go back to COVID, when you had um, senior political figures uh, wearing masks yeah. when they were doing press conferences, when they were out in public, but as soon as they were out of the camera's uh, eye, they yeah. took them off. Yeah. yeah? Yes. And, they, and yeah. you know... Uh, notoriously in, in, in Britain, uh, Downing Street, the prime minister's um, uh, base, they had parties during the lockdown. So that, that su suggests that they were fully aware that there was not really a, a, a deadly uh, virus, but they have to show partial compliance. Uh, but they're not the people that are running the show. And if you look at some of these very public figures that we associate with um, globalism or the New World Order, people like George Soros, um, uh, Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, I would put them at that second 
level as well on the pyramid. They're not really in control. Um, these are front men um, for the people above them who are at the commanding heights, at the apex of the pyramid. And now here we have to be honest, Mark, is that we don't know who those people are and they don't want us to know who they are. They work by being in the shadows and they remain there. And, and that makes it quite difficult for us when you're talking to a, a, you know, a normie who, who, you know, who sees this, all this conspiracy theory stuff as, as really kind of a bit wacky. And um, they'll, they'll see you as a crank if you're talking about they're doing this and they're doing that. And you can't even identify who the they is. But that, that is the nature of the beast. What I'm finding fascinating as well is, um, no, thank you, Neil, for that. I mean, I'll just say this as an aside. Someone, uh, um, Elon Musk, as we take, we're just taking Elon Musk on face value, right? There's a lot to dig behind. But I understand that his grandfather was head of the Technocracy Society in Canada, as a dear friend of mine explained to me. But one of the wonderful things about having a discussion, you and I are speaking to each other where people are listening. So in other words, this for me is a good mental health exercise. I am talking to you. Putting your mental health hat on and your concern for mental health. Where is the mental health right now of the UK after all that we have been through? And I'll just throw this to you as an aside. We look at SAGE, the Sci is it the Scientific Advisory Group? Um, and one member of that is Susie, Susan Mackey, who's mm. an out-and-out, an out, who says she's a communist, right? Mm. So if we hold that in play as well, what has been the effect of all of this on the country's mental health, Neil, from your, from your point of view? And then I, then I want to talk about men's mental health, frankly. What are, you, mm. what are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. Well, it's always hard to quantify the mental health of a nation, but I think something which is fairly uh, well known is that when society has something that pulls everybody together in a collective effort, so people f battling adversity, that actually improves mental health. Um, now, I, I believe that mental health probably included, uh, it, it improved in two ways during the, the, the three years of the, 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 the COVID, what I see as a pseudo pandemic. Yep. The majority of people who were just believing the narrative, their mental health improved. And I'm talking very generally here, because obviously some people had some very dire um, consequences from the COVID lockdowns, but just at a very general level, uh, mental health improved because, um, and this is what the government was pushing, this message of we're all in it together, you know, and that genuinely does make people feel that they've got an important role, you know, keeping themselves and their family safe. Now, for those of us who know that COVID-19 uh, was a scam, our mental health also improved because 
we found that while we were being ostracized and treated as black sheep of the family, we found a new tribe. We found people who um, think like us and built some very good relationships with people that continue to this day. Um, so our mental health improved as well. But um, looking at the mental health situation now, we have probably a much more mixed picture where you have some of the people that took the COVID vaccines who now regret what they did. Uh, and you have some of the people in what we might call the freedom movement who find it impossible not to be overwhelmed with pessimism about what we're, what we're facing. So it, it, it is a very uh, mixed picture. But if I could just say one other thing about mental health, um, Mark, because as far as I'm aware, and I haven't really looked in, intensively in this, as far as I'm aware, my book, uh, uh, me as the author, are the only instance of a major psychological operation being carried out against the British people, but also this was done in other countries as well, in late January, um, early February 2020. So before COVID like fully struck, before the lockdown, the establishment invented a toilet roll crisis. Now, I don't know if it's toilet roll the length the, the term you would use in the US. Um, I think so. Um, they have they have toilets over there. They call them the John, and they and yeah. they yeah we we'll call them toilet roll. Um, okay. but, but yeah, absolutely. I I remember that. Go on, you you explain what happened. Yeah. So. Obviously, the establishment knew that they had to get people ready for COVID. They knew that they were going to do this unprecedented um, lockdown, and there was a lot, you know, a, an awful lot of um, um, the, the psychology of fear used to induce, this, you know, um, the, the, the required kind of mental state in society. Don't you said that. Dumper just said that toilet paper in America is called TP, so uh, we'll call it. So we'll call it TP. Or, or, funny, just, or just or just toilet paper. Or just toilet you know, paper. Yeah, when the kids go out and and harass somebody's house, you know, that's called TPing it. You know, and if they have the tree in the front yard, they throw the toilet paper <laughs> up over the tree and get streaked in all the. Paper you you just reminded me of a uh, Beavis and Butthead episode yeah. where they're, they're yeah. talking about TP. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So what they did, the establishment, is they needed a commodity, which is pretty vital, and they needed something that was highly visible, right? So they contrived a shortage, and they provoked panic buying, right? And this was quite easily done through use of the media, which, of course, completely controlled um, the Daily Mail and the like, big pictures of, um, you know, people with, um, you know, some, somebody with a, a supermarket trolley with toilet rolls, you know, packed right up to the ceiling, you know, that sort of thing. And all of us saw, all of us saw going into uh, supermarkets that the um, toilet roll, um, the, the, the pallets were it, it emptied fast and were often like signs saying sold out. 
right? Uh, this was completely artificial. There was no uh, shortage of the, the paper. There was no distribution problem. It was completely artificial. But they knew that they could get people, the more sort of looking after themselves type, to stock up, you know, for for maybe several months or even two years, you know. <laughs> well, in, the, in America, we saw the queues at Costco, and of course, we've got Costco over here. I'll just throw that in. And we had those infamous queues as well, didn't we? So I'm just showing that as an illustration because that was going yes. on. And now the purpose of this, Mark, is that countries like the USA and the UK and Western countries more generally, they've got a strong individualist streak in their culture. You know, yeah. we're, we're not collectivist in the way that communist countries are or Islamic countries, right? We have freedom. We have choice. And, and we're, we're proud to have those freedoms. But what they did with the toilet roll crisis is that they wanted to contrast individual liberty with the greater good. And suddenly they had people pining for rationing of toilet rolls. So you see, you see what they what they were up to here. And um, uh, of course, the whole COVID narrative. Once it was, um, you know, uh, uh, launched, the, the message was all about uh, the, the greater good. You know, away from this kind of individual rights and liberties, and of course they did the same with the, the vaccination program as well. The whole COVID narrative was built around: um, you must do what's right for you and your family and your community and your country. In a, in America, the because of the Constitution and because of the ethos and because you've got the First Amendment defended by the Second Amendment, you have the right to bear arms against a tyrannical government that is not there for duck shooting. It's a long way, way to say this. So they then want low taxes. They don't want the government to interfere with their lives. We, as you know, have a very, very... That's our ethos, but we have a government that doesn't believe in that, that actually, I would say, socialism is is rampant within within this country. That's just personal opinion. Go on. I, Sorry. I agree with you. I, I think it's, um, and I'm not saying this to be um, um, sycophantic in any way to our, you know, the, 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 the people running this program, but uh, I think the USA really is the, 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 the bastion of um, individual freedoms, because in the, in the UK, um, they people glorify, sanctify the National Health Service, which yes. is actually a pretty terrible health service in, 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 by comparison with, um, with, with, with many other uh, developed countries. But it, it's completely, it's like a religion. And of course, we had this terrible, uh, Mark, you, you, you remember this, um, Thursday night at eight o'clock in the evening, the banging of pots and pans. It's like something straight out of communist China. Yeah, yeah. And anyone not joining in on the street, that, that was noted, you know? I, I, I didn't join in. 
<laughs> I didn't, I didn't do any. I didn't do. I didn't do any. Didn't do any of that. But Neil, so what you've illustrated brilliantly is a psychological attack on the country, and the thing that really got me, and and Kate Shamanara showed me this. It's how we started talking and then meeting. So March. Uh, 2020 on, is it the 23rd of March? I don't know. I've got the paper in the file here. That COVID-19 was downgraded from a highly infectious disease to a not so highly infectious disease. And what I'm fascinated by what you've just said in regards to the mental health, that those people that were following the program, listening to everything that the Bias Broadcasting Corporation, known as the BBC, um, was pushing, and then for us who were, who were saying, no, that we don't believe in this, there is something wrong. In fact, now this is a lie. Uh, no, we're not having a jab. And then afterwards, trying to cope with that, the fact that if people, and I was trying to tell people, there's a piece of paper. Here it is. It's been downgraded. What does this mean? And people were still not listening to you. Another, to me, another bait and switch and people laughing at us. What, what, what say you? I just wonder what your opinion People loved COVID. Right. Now, I know that sounds like a, a, a yeah. crazy thing to say, right? Mm. But although there was some genuine fear of, of the virus, I think that the regime that it created, the working from home, the... Um, you know, some dr dramatic changes have been made where we haven't we haven't gone back to life before uh, uh, COVID, and the, the professional bureaucratic managerial class like most of the changes, most of the things that were done during um, COVID nineteen. Um, the the, uh, the kind of unthinking masses, if you like, uh, this was exciting. Right. You know, who couldn't be excited to, turning on their news every night and seeing these um, uh, rising... And, yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. be honest, people like this sort of thing. And and they wouldn't want you coming away, saying to them, it's been downgraded as a, a, a virus of uh, no serious concern. What a party pooper, Mark. Mm. Mm. No, well, I tell you what, I... Sorry, I'm just chewing some. I I was a party pooper, and so were you, and so were and so were um, so were others, um, so were others um of 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 the that we know. You know, we we were trying to talk about this. You um, last sort of eight minutes of spending this amazing time with you, Neil, and I'm very very grateful. Um, and again, it is it is lovely to see you. Um. You mentioned the the National Health Service. What are your what are your thoughts? Because you're right, we have edified this. You know, I, my own understanding that I think we the the NHS signed its first contract with Pfizer in 1954, and I I call doctors overpaid over overpaid pharmacist. Frankly, mm. I'm not being rude, mm. but when they're digging mm. out pills. I call them overpaid uh, pharmacists. Where the the NHS is, we is just this hole that seems to suck up money constantly. 
What do you? I just see it as a as a bureaucracy that's out of control. But actually, all it is is a funnel for pharmaceutical companies to then to then um, basically throw their throw their uh, their goods on on the population of the UK. What it, What are your thoughts? What how, What can we do to change this situation? I suppose that's the other big question. Mm. Well, I think we've got to realise that the National Health Service in the UK um, ha has been taken over and its whole kind of uh, principles and practice have been distorted. It, it, it isn't really about getting the best possible care uh, for all members of society. It's a massive data harvesting programme um, it, it, as you suggested, it works closely with Big Pharma. Um, it's, it's, it's a really vital tool of the establishment to control people. And one of the best ways, of course, to create a, uh, a, a fear in society is to threaten people's health, which is why they, they use this, um, this um, pseudo-pandemic um, people really are, you know, they put their health first. And you see in surveys all the time that it, British citizens, uh, the, the National Health Service is always one of the top things of their, that they're concerned yeah. about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, they, you get this artificial political debate going on about, you know, possible privatisation of parts of the NHS, about the NHS always needs more money and... Um, uh, you, you know, it, it is. There's no critical thinking on it at all. Um, for, but sorry, I apologise for American for our American listeners. Um, the National Health Service is what you guys call socialised medicine. That's what you call our system, socialised medicine, yeah. because we it comes out of our our taxes where they have got a all right. They've got Medicare, Medicaid, and that, but it, it's also private. You pay into a into a scheme as a private insurance. Um, I hope I've explained that right. But Neil, where I mean, the state. I mean, we've all, in one sense, we've all benefited from it on on one level, but we've also suffered from it because the whole idea is, well, you've got a problem. Here's a pill. Here's another pill, and here's another pill. And in America, I know it's rife of that. And plus through the food system, et cetera, the air, the amount of people that have that suffer from what they've eaten and all the rest and they're allergic to this, that and the other. I think now within America, for argument's sake, they're looking at what, something like 78 vaccines for, for children and all this through their lifetime and all this kind of thing. I mean, it's it's totally off the charts, but you and I are then called natters for even for even pointing these things out well indeed and just as the nhs was um you know had a a a, 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 a crucial role with covid19 it, it, it's also playing its part in the the climate crisis as well uh national health service trusts have all got um climate change officers. Um, so they're supposed to be, doctors and nurses and administrators are supposed to be providing a service which is for the good of uh, patients, the good of the, the, the community, good of society. 
but actually they are instruments for the imposition of um, uh, was it DEI diversity yeah. Yeah. Um, equity and inclusion e equality yeah. and inclusion yeah. and the green agenda and this is the, the important point is that green and woke are two sides of the same coin Absolutely. and I feel that I've done a a, a, a a useful sort of um, two-part explanation of how the world is going with um, Moralitis, which was about the woke ideology, and this current book, Green in Tooth and Claw, which is about the uh, the, 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 the faux um, green uh, alarmism. Uh, both of them are for the same purpose, they want total control of population and resources. They want a two-tier society. It will be a technocracy run by an elite, and those below them will be, we will be uh, ripe for uh, impoverishment, enslavement, and most troublingly, depopulation, unless we can get enough people to wake up in time to mount and effective resistance. I hear you, and that resistance in regard to farmers has been going on in Europe in incredible way within uh, Germany and Holland and, and, and France, and uh, there has been uh, expressions of that annoyance in within our own country. I'd, I'd, I'll sort of end with this because um, I know for me, if I didn't have my own personal faith in Christ, my own, you know, and beliefs like that, I know that over the last few years, things would have been tough. I wondered if on a personal level, and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, I wonder if, uh, because I see this as, as a battle between good and evil, we are fighting evil. What we're facing is evil. To me, scripture is very clear about that and the direction of where that's going. I just wondered if, if that, um, had made you think about that side of life spiritually? Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't really know James Dellingpole personally, but I would say my, I've gone on a fairly similar journey to him. Where he, mm. he is now speaking very uh, openly about his, the importance of his Christian uh, beliefs. Mm. Uh, and, and I can see... Uh, I've always been open to the idea of um uh open to faith i've never shut my the, the door on it like many people did um and and i have certainly walked into the church a lot more now and and i do see i know it sounds a bit cliche to say this but i do see what's happening as the the prophecy of the last book of the Bible, which is yeah. um, uh, Revelation. Revelation. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. Neil, I, I'm very grateful for you actually saying that. Thank you, um, because I do. Um, that also, that also doesn't make us uh, popular because, frankly, it's not it's not taught. It's, I'm just saying this is my personal opinion. It's not taught. It's not explained in that way. And um, I, there is the roadmap of what is happening. Absolutely, it's in Scripture. There are prophecies. Mm. Um, we are, you know, the 
as it said, you will not be able to uh, buy or sell without the number of the beast. And people go, well, what's that? Well, we can look at AI, look at all the digital control and everything else that's happening. Neil, um, where can people find your book? And I'm just going to end this and just thank you again for jo for joining me and uh, for joining us in America via the UK. It's one of the wonderful joys about having this technology. Where can people connect with you, find you, and find your book, please? Okay, well, I've got a, a, a very sort of low um, footprint <laughs> on uh, social media, but I am on Gab. I right. decided to leave Twitter several years ago. I'm on yeah. Gab, and my address there is uh, Dr. Underscore Neil, which is N I A double L underscore McRae, which is M small C big C R A E really? at gab.com. And I, I, my, the book is available on Amazon. Uh, UK price is um, £12.99. I think it can also be ordered from the Bruges Group, which is the publisher, um, but probably easiest just to go to Amazon. Brilliant. Well, there were, there's listeners to this program all over the world. And the other the other four wonderful thing about talking to you is to, you know, is to remind other people in other countries that they're not alone. I mean, of course, by now, so many people have woken up to that. They know that there is agenda and the agenda is being, being pushed uh, all over the world. And um, I, again, I just thank you for joining me. Thank you for what you've just said at the end, because personally, um, I, I just remind us, remind everyone that one of the biggest things that we have in our arsenal is prayer and is, is praying to God and is praying individually and with each other and, and for each other. And I would encourage people to do that ac across the world because, it, we, you know, it's engaging in that. Um, we're in a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 says we're not fighting flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, and then lays out putting our armor on every day to protect ourselves. Mm. Neil, I can't thank you enough. I look forward to... I need to come down to that uh, big smoke and we need to uh, we need to meet up. But thank you so much for uh, joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. So if you want to listen to the next hour, my friend, feel free. But totally understand if you've got to go because uh, – as about the the direction of the conversation is going to go in a new in an in, in a different direction in regard to what's happened in regard to J six and what's happened in America. Mm -hmm. So I'll be bringing Felicia on uh, any moment to discuss that. But thank you again, sir. Yeah, thanks very much, Mark, and have faith, everyone. Bless you. Talk to you soon. Take care. So, um, Neil, thank you very much. And I'm going to bring on uh, Felicia in a minute, who is going to uh, tell us her story, um, because this is really, really important. One of the joys about this is is who you meet. And one of the joys about doing live radio is that uh, one of your be best friends, closest friends, David Summerall, suddenly suggests, get this person on. You're going to be uh, doing a live show. That'd be great. So... I'm now doing that. I'm now going to introduce to you, and I've got to put my glasses on, Felicia and Conald. And Felicia is fits within the remit of a J6 prisoner. And uh, Felicia, was. I want to invite her on to explain her story. And I don't know if 
just remind everyone, please go to uh, the American Gulag Chronicles.com. Um, there's book one there. American Gulag Chronicles.com has produced book two that has just, uh, just come out. Um, and I cannot emphasize it enough for people, please, to buy book one, book two. Don't just buy one, buy loads of them because that book is helping to provide financial assistance where possible to the J6 prisoners. Thumper, thank you so much for doing that. So it's the American Gulag Chronicles, book one, book two, um, letters from the prisoners to uh, talk about the incarceration um, that a uh, number of people are presently undergoing. The fact that there a few weeks ago um, there was 1,271 arrests and um, I have the privilege to ask Felicia to come on to tell her story. And uh, I just urge you to stay with us and to hear what she's got to say, because this is, this is the reality of what we are facing in the United States of America and in the UK, which is, which is tyranny and, and across the world. Neil was talking about communism cultural Marxism, this, again, is the fact that when people are presently going through the legal system in America and then finding out that it is not the legal system that it should be, that there is a country under two, one law for them and one law for us. Felicia, I cannot thank you enough for... Um, for joining me uh, in my time this afternoon, your time this morning. How, how are you? And um, please, where do we begin at the beginning? Um, I think in life, you, you've, um, you've been quite, uh, quite through a lot. David was telling me about a very serious car accident that, uh, that you had. Um, but what is the position that you're in? I understand that you are going to be going to prison for for three months for being uh, being there on on uh, in washington in uh, on uh, jan 6 2021 could you explain your story to us and thank you yeah so hi hi no no thank you for joining us yeah thank you for having me so and i also want to give shout out to the person that spoke before me i came on early and listened to him and he's he is a wealth of knowledge and articulates his knowledge very well. And I think people need to re-listen to his words. Um, but as far as, as far as switching over to me and my story, um, I was in a very serious car accident. Um, it was supposed to be fatal, but by an absolute miracle was not. That was in 2020, 2020. That led me to have lost all my jobs, my vehicle, my home, everything, um, due to being incapacitated for a while. I had never traveled, so I decided to start traveling and just live out of a vehicle in national parks and take photography. I did landscape photography. Uh, my last state in the United States that I visited was Washington, D.C., um, came back from that. There's a lot of parts to this, and I'll try and skim through it quickly. And no, not at all. You just, uh, you just take your time. You've got 50 minutes. 
<laughs> I don't know if that'll be enough. I've asked many people to try to summarize, summarize me and they can't. I was 27 years old at the time. I went to DC, came home from DC, personally had been working on and saving up for artificial insemination for my second child. Right. Upon returning from traveling the entire United States, decided that was going to be my birthday present to myself after three to six years of saving up and planning. Um, did that, had the procedure for that. I'm a single mom at the time of one child and now two children. So I did that procedure uh, immediately after, which had been about a month since January 6th. Um, the FBI showed up at my door at a like pre-dawn raid and uh, had many agents with gunpoint and shield uh, remove me from my house. They then took me to prison where I sat in prison for a few weeks um, in solitary confinement with very minimal. There's people doing prison reforms because of this. Um, it's very eye-opening to have the perception of people are in jail. They usually should be in jail. Of course, the conditions aren't great. It's jail or prison. I was in prison. But they don't understand the gravity. Um, while I was there, there was no phone call. There was no showers. There was no time outside. There was minimal to no bedding or clothing. Um, the food that you would eat would be su such minuscule amounts, and it would be have mold on it. Um, so found out I was pregnant in prison about two weeks later, got released and approved through lengthy battles to be on home confinement with an ankle monitor. Remained on home confinement for about a year until I gave birth. Um, and the home confinement people also can't physically grasp unless they're in that situation. Yes. Um, they can try, but I, I, I know having experience, it's not, it's not, it's impossible to grasp either of these two situations without personally being there, no matter how much you research and, and attempt to, which is unfortunate, but being confined to a house in a rural area with not being able to work, not being able to have food, nothing. So I was very sick, lost a decent amount of weight through my pregnancy due to those um, facts. Um, and as long as the psychological damage too, um, this monitors on your ankle, so it mutilates you physically and mentally. They tell you if it alarms or you break any of your restrictions, you'll be sent immediately back to prison and you will not be out. And at that time, I was facing 36 years for being present um, and walking inside the Capitol on January 6th. Right. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. So they were charging you with 36 years. Could you – sorry to interrupt, but could you break oh, down – what what they accused you of actually doing, what you actually did. Were you on the grass? Did you go in the building? What 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 happened? Yeah, of course. So they charged with obstruction of official proceeding, which is a felony. Um, they charged with obstruction of law enforcement, aiding and abetting. Um, they and then there's about three missed and both of those are felonies and then there's about three misdemeanors for miscellaneous trespassing and um being on restricted grounds and that sort of thing um and what i did is i was present um i did walk into the capitol about 20 30 minutes after the initial breach i believe 
um, I had video very, um, I don't know what the word is, video that would show like innocence. Yes. So, but they don't allow you to show that. You mentioned the two tier justice system. They don't care <laughs> about anything really, like just being there. Um, they ask you to put aside, do they ask you to put aside your constitutional rights yes. in regard to your representation in court? Absolutely. Every single time I had status hearing. So I've been battling this legally extensively for the last three years and yeah. every single status hearing got pushed and the judge would verbally say, um, the right of these, like, Oh, I wish I knew the exact sentence he said, but it was, I know he said like the gravity of the situation or unprecedented times or something like that outweighed. Right your constitutional rights so that right. they're completely all of them yeah. all of them the, re the reason why i'm laboring this to say what did you do on the day is because people some people have been at the, the beginning were quite outrageous in some of what they were saying as if to say well they must have done something they deserve yeah. this right and that's the if same we, thing that people say about people in prison right yes, they, they right. deserve to be there no a lot of people don't and it's crazy because you don't know till you're in there and you see it like a lot of people are systemically put there and there's labor that the government buys stuff made by prisoners for 20 30 cents an hour so right. it's systemically put there and I, that's like a whole other thing that people are unaware of but it kind of leads into the fact like there were people there very very uh, of the half million people that were present that day there was a hundredth or a thousandth that maybe did something violent or that they should not have well as we know as we now know it's a fed surrection you know yeah no wondering. one was charged no not a single person out of the over a thousand that have been charged and right. rounded up literally hunted down and rounded up well, um, i i want to i'll just say this to you as part part of your research is look up the clintons and how they weaponized the prison system for the, i have for, you can't see it but uh, <laughs> i've taken notes from your last hour of Brilliant. Well, you know, this whole thing of three strikes and you're out, et cetera, et cetera. I think that is a, another long subject. And also, um, you know, getting getting prisoners, I'll just say this as an aside, and I want to come back to this, your story, getting prisoners to donate blood. Mm -hmm. And some of that blood, sadly, was uh, was not pure. That was shipped over to our National Health Service tidying uh, tying in with my earlier discussion with neil and then that blood was used in blood transfusions and over here it then gave uh hepatitis b uh and they probably and, didn't even tell them right and, and other, when it did get uh, brought up to them it, uh, I absolutely yeah it affected a very close friend of mine and there is a court case that's ongoing at the moment that and of course may potentially forever be ongoing because that's yeah, what um, happened Absolutely. And they don't want to pay out on that. But I'm mm -hmm. sorry, I'm slightly digressing. What I wanted to encourage you is to say that's all part of your research. That's all part of your research because you're raising such an important issue. Felicia, yeah. I want to drill down on the day 
what you what where were you who you were standing next to etc and then as you said you then went into the building another 20 30 minutes after what they're calling the first breach even though you can't open the doors from the outside the doors are open from the inside they were opened. it was planned and it's crazy right. that people don't know this like right. the lack of fencing the lack of officers i've spoke i spoke to officers that day that said they had no idea these people would be here. They have no preparation. They were refused backup. They had no gear. Um, so those are, yeah. So I was there that day. Um, I walked around all of DC, went there. I was at the Capitol kind of steps after the initial breach, walked unimpeded upstairs into the Capitol through open doors, um, saw police officers inside. They were not upset gave them like a fist bump, like, Hey, what's up? Like, how you guys doing? Do you need help wow. with anything? Wow. Um, there's a video of me like turning around. I love you guys. Like, which way do I go? Oh, you can head down that way. Okay. Um, I was standing next to and walking with the proud boys, which is a group that I have now post J six learned about extensively. Yeah. Um, yeah. and that's who I was charged with as well due to being next to and walking with. Right, hold on. This is really important because they have charged, they've given Enrico 27 years. Who was not there. <laughs> Thank you very much for saying that. Then Joe Biggs, Bigsy, I'm not sure what they've given him, 20, is it 17 years um, for being there? So, right. So you were with them. You were just standing with them. You didn't know who they were beforehand. Is that a fair comment? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And I didn't even know that they were part of the Proud Boys. They were just very nice gentlemen that yeah. looked like if there's a lot of um, violence going on in America these last few years, an extensive amount. Um, Antifa, just, BLM, the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, that just the police just let happen. So. Yeah. I'm from a very small town and I don't go to major cities. So having shown up there independently alone with my little brother and seeing the mass amount of people, it was very overwhelming. I was like, well, like if something goes down, like this is terrifying. I'm very small. I'm like five foot one, right. 120 right. pound, like tiny, tiny person. Right. So I see this group of three, four guys on the corner and I was like, they look super cool, like had radios. And I was like, if something goes down, like, these guys look like they have some training, like medical training, look like they might be able to communicate if our, cause our phones weren't working. Um, so I walk up, I walked right up to him, was like, hi, my name's Felicia. And they of course were like, well, hello, like pleasure to meet you. Everyone there was very happy. The atmosphere was very, uh, joy, joyful. Mm -hmm. Um, and they were like, Hey, we're going to head over here. You guys are welcome to walk with us. And I was like, cool. Like we're, we don't have any friends here. Like we're not doing anything, have no plans. Like, Okay. And that was just the vibe that maintained. Um, and they, all the officials excessively investigate you. So they had known that I had no previous contact, no connections, no knowledge. They look so far into your past and know every single fact about you prior to coming to your house to round you up. So they knew that I did not know these people prior, had no plans. Um, they knew that they had no plans, but they need someone to take a fall. And strong masculine men are a good one to lock up. You make an amazing point. What What was the gap? Can, uh, 
There is a reason I'm drilling down on this because the facts are so important yeah. and your story is very, very important. And I'm saying, and as you know, you know, David is a dear friend of mine. And so we, over the last few years, I've been privileged to have so many conversations with him and others to educate me and trying to get my head around what what happened. Because initially, so many people have made assumptions. People, you know, that People still heard... don't know, which is why I'm finally now speaking out. Right. Even close friends of mine have no idea. Right. And it blows my mind because to me it's second nature like yes it was a setup no this stuff didn't happen but they yeah. repeatedly showed those three or four violent clips edited mm -hmm. so excessively that it has become fact in people's heads and that is not well as you are aware you're more than aware of david's documentaries so when he then brought out um um uh, writing history the, fir the first one right and then suddenly you've got um, smoke bombs coming in and you've got people saying, we, we back the blue, we back the blue. And this shock of the police's behavior. It was then... an instantaneous switch. I was at the very front of the crowd when that happened. Brilliant. And yeah. most of the police officers, some were happy. Some were supporting us. Like you have every right to be here. Like I'm just doing my job. Yeah. Um, then there was others that were very afraid. And then there were some that were thirsting for blood and ready to like use their force. And those are the people that without warning, without giving any signal to disperse, um, just started throwing flash bombs and gas into the crowd. And the crowd went from singing the national anthem, being happy, not pushing, just existing, after being gassed and stuff to it causing like an instantaneous, like what the heck is going on? Yeah. And yeah. people were trying to escape. People were getting very angry. People started pushing. And that is when that switch happened. David's um, third uh, documentary and in regard to the whole, the J6 timeline, again, you raise a very, very important point because the whole tie up between um Ted Cruz, a couple of other senators standing up and saying, having a conversation with Mike Pence in regard to proceedings, in regard to saying, well, maybe the, the votes need to go back of the Electoral College, back to the states to be rechecked. And then maybe round about 103, 4, 5, as you've said, you've described it as a switch. And then suddenly all these smoke bombs uh, are then coming in. Yeah, because no one was going to go in the Capitol. People right. were just at the base, just singing, wanting their voice to be heard, hoping that the people inside um, could just hear them, singing the national anthem, just knowing their presence was there. Right. That is what was going on until they started getting gassed and bombed. And then, and then the doors being opened from the inside. Right. And they were asking their electrical, their elective representatives to re represent them. And the reason why that they were there was to take their grievances quite rightly to the people's house. Felicia, mm -hmm. what was the gap between Jan 6 and when you were arrested? What what date were you arrested on? Um, February 10th, I think I was arrested on, of 2021. Why? And I was sentenced um, right. in Sorry. 2024, I think, recently, a month right. ago. 
I want to talk about that. What are, why have they singled you out? Why have they gone for you? It's not just me. It's thousands of people. I know, but I'm just, um, I'm asking that. I mean, as you say, you were there with your little brother. Has your little, little brother been arrested? Yeah. Right. Yeah, they rounded us up on the same morning. Know. Right. Okay. Um, okay. And I don't, I don't know. They used, um, another thing I, I don't think people know is that there is no corner of the earth that you can communicate on without them knowing. So people will say, let's write on Telegram, let's write on Signal. There is no safe spot. Um, they use geolocation on cell phones, even though people's cell phones weren't working that day, um, to find out who was there. Um, and then social media as well, they backtracked it. They got approval um, warrants to get all of social media prior to any due processing. So like normally companies have to have a, a warrant or like something process that was overridden. Every single law was overridden to round these people up. Um, they did the house surveillance excessively. Um, come, they, when they came in, I didn't even see a search warrant for my house. They rounded me up, took me out, took me down to their headquarters and then straight to prison. Um, not once did I see a warrant until after I was out of prison and months later. They wouldn't even tell me, actually, they wouldn't even tell me why they were arresting me, what was going on, where I was going, They nothing. So in your arrest, you were, you were at home, you were at home, and you, you were with one of your children, your first child then. Mm -hmm. um, they come along, do a complete swap. There's, I'm, describe it, describe it. What are we looking at? Red, red light, red dots everywhere. Describe yeah. it. How did you, how did your child react to this? So my child wasn't home and I don't know if they knew that because a lot of times the children are home, but that one night he was spending the night at a friend's house, wow. um, which yeah. was by the grace of God. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was asleep. I heard shouting to come out. I live in a rural area, so there's no, never like, I, I'm a very light sleeper, woke up, I was in pajamas, um, w which were like kind of tight fitting pajamas. It was very cold. It was February. I walk through the house. I look through one of my side doors, which is a double glass door. And I see the, my entire road blocked off with, um, vehicles with lights on unmarked vehicles through the whole road. I see people, um, FBI, it was all FBI agents. They had completely surrounded my house with shields and ARs. So as I'm walking, I just see the entire road blocked off with unmarked light up, lighted up vehicles. And I was like, Oh my God. And I, at the time, like, I don't know if it's how I cope with it, but I saw all these people with their guns at my house, with their shields and all these vehicles lit up, like, which is a decent way away from my front door. And I'm walking through the house and I'm like, they brought friends. Like, this is crazy. And I walk out the front door and they have their guns drawn and there's people up the stairs at the front door and then in the driveway area there. And they have vehicles pulled into the driveway, um, blocking off my vehicles as well. And I walk out, I'm still half asleep, but I was, I was kind of irritated, honestly, because I was like, this is, they had already researched me. They know I'm not violent. They know I'm a single mom that homesteads and homeschools and uh, saves animals lives in my spare time, like as a career. So them coming so hot, like I walked outside and I was like, what the 
are you doing like at my house? Like what is going on? And they're yelling at me, put your hands up, walk slowly. And I, I got mad and I wish I had a ring camera or something to immoralize this moment. And I said, does it look like I have any weapons on me? Cause I was no bra, super tight pajamas. I was like, does it look like I have a weapon on me? And I walked down the stairs nonchalantly towards these guns. And I was like, what the fuck are you doing at my house? I was so mad. And they're like, put your hands behind your back, la, 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 la. And I sit down and I was like, what the fuck is going on? We'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that later. Do you have any weapons in the house? And I was like, yes, I have weapons in my house. Like, and they immediately go in the house and they search everything. I tell them where they are and they have a table set up outside. Um, they bring it all out and I'm sitting with my handcuffs um, against one of their vehicles. And I was like, can you please go get me some shoes? Like it's freezing cold out here. So they were nice. They went and got me some flip-flops. I'm standing there and they have their table out with all my guns. And then they come out and they're like, okay, clear. And I'm looking at the guns and I was like, what does clear mean? And they're like, oh, that means they cleared the house of all the guns. And I laughed. I started laughing and they're like, what, what is so funny? And I was like, you guys get paid to do this? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, you missed one. And like everyone got all on edge. They're like, what do you mean? And I was like, on my nightstand. <laughs> I was like, retards. I was like, and they go back in the house and I yell at them. Like, it's loaded. Don't shoot yourself. I'm like shaking my head. And I'm like, what is going? Like, it, I thought it was a joke. Um, the part where I didn't think it was so funny, even the way to the prison, I was like, can you guys please stop and get me some food? Like, I am so hungry. And they're like, no, we can't. And I was like, ugh, like rude. And they were nice on the way to their, um, to the FBI office. There was two agents with me driving me there in their undercover vehicle and they were playing music. And I was like, your music selection sucks. And they're like, Oh really? Like, do you have any requests? And I was like, actually I do. So they pulled out their cell phone cause it was an old school radio and they pulled out their cell phone. And I said, can you play courtesy of the red, white and blue please? And they did. And I sang it. And then, my next song request was Shania Twain, Man, I Feel Like a Woman. And I sang that one too. And they're like, that's pretty decent song selection. And I asked them about themselves and asked them if their mothers would be proud that they're arresting soccer moms while the cartel is murdering people and cutting them up on the border. And they didn't really have a response for that. Um, they just said they're doing their job. And I was like, that's funny. Do you like, think they were embarrassed by what they were doing? Do you think they were embarrassed? Oh, I feel like I did a decent job at that. Hmm. I was like, I was like, who, who told you guys to like be here? And they said they had to pull officers, FBI officers from different, um, like all the way from like surrounding cities to do this. And I was like, wow. And I was like, I'm sorry. It wasn't more eventful for you guys. Like, I didn't know, like, should have given me a heads up. I would have done something more. And I was like, I hope you guys are proud. And one of them was like ex-military and one of them was like an ex-flight nurse or something. It was a girl and a guy. Really good, prestigious past careers and lives. And I was like, and you guys are doing this? And I was like, is this what you thought your job would be? Like rounding up soccer moms? And I was like, honestly, I'm impressed. And I was like, but I'd reevaluate your priorities. And I was like, I don't know if you guys know, but we're there's cartel on the border that cut people up. I was hunting down there a few weeks ago. Um, I can show you where one of the trees where they murder people are at. And they just like looked at me and I was like, yeah, I was like, it's crazy that you guys have all your resources doing this. And they like, you could tell in their eyes that they weren't happy, but they repeatedly said like, we're just doing our job. We have orders. 
we have to follow them. And I was like, that sounds like some Nazi, some Nazi ass shit right there. <laughs> I was like, just following orders. And I said, I'll make sure to tell my unborn child that you're just following orders. Take us some, um, and I don't apologize for this because the details are so important and the details are so important for people watching and listening. Because again, it's taken um, to move the needle has been such a, you know, it's been such an effort to then realize that people like, sadly, Ashley Babbitt, Roseanne Boyland, Kevin Greeson, Benjamin Phillips, and Officer Signick died. And to get the names out, I mean, David has worked so hard, along with others, to get those names out to then say, this is what happened. And then, of course, with people like Philip Anderson and what they went through as they were trying to defend. And people Rome. still don't know that like, he's worked so hard, but they still don't know. And it's crazy how much the media influences people. And historically, of course, it's always been used. That was its conception was to do this purpose. But one person gets killed and they want to use it as a narrative and it mm. will obsess the world. Mm. All of these people get killed. They don't want people to know about it. Nothing. Crickets. Doesn't matter. No process, no due process, nothing. And people are very big on, oh, the United States. I wanted to make a point too, is where all the freedoms are, is where the constitution is. No, it's not. It used to be. Um, there's a quote that I wrote down that I thought of from Abraham Lincoln saying like, America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, it will be because we destroy ourselves. Everyone in America is very headstrong saying, no one would fight us. We have more guns than blades of grass. They know that and they will not physically fight us. And even if they were to, they won't, but if they were to, all of all of America's obese. They couldn't fight back. They talk a lot. You're not gonna be able to physically fight. Like, let's be real. Also, that's not their game plan anymore. They have infiltrated all of our systems internally, silently. And America's waiting for this like monumental switch where it's like, today, the media goes down, today, the grocery stores close today. They're waiting for that, like a, a monumental thing to happen. And that's not going to happen because they've already, they're already in, they're already doing what they want. So whatever big event you're hoping might happen, like zombies or a bombing or China coming or the government bringing F 16s down to bomb your house, it's not going to happen. They're already here. It's already getting too late. Like you need to stand up and do something physically, not just type on your social media that this is the worst thing ever. And I don't like it. Like, what have you done locally? Like, have you gone to any meetings? Have you written any letters? But no one has, they just sit there and think somebody else is going to fix it. The big yellow man in the house is going to save everyone. No, he won't. And unless people stand up and do physical actions, not on media because they'll track you silently go make a neighborhood meeting, go next door and meet your neighbor. Like no one talks to anybody anymore. And that's going to be a problem. It is a problem. All I can say is when are you starting your run for the president? Maybe you have to start as a Senator first. I think what you've just, what you've just, uh, 
explained, spoken about in the last uh, couple of minutes, I think is is such an important thing. I would I would say without being hyperbole, it's it's a real privilege to sit here and talk to you and hear hear you say that. Yeah, um, and it's sad. Like I'm a single mom. I have two sweet young boys that I homeschool and depend on me financially, physically, and emotionally. And I'm out here doing sh- like that. It shouldn't be the case, but it is. And I'm still doing it. And now because I stood up for people behind a computer screen, I have to go to prison. I can't pay my electric bill. I will be on home confinement when I return from prison. I have to send my two-year-old child that's still nursing to another family in a different state while I sit in prison for people that are behind a screen saying that's so sad. It is sad. And like people say, I'll, I'll pray for you. Like you can pray and I appreciate that. And I hope everyone does together, but also Daniel had to get the rock to throw at the, the line. Like you can't just pray. Like you gotta still do some action. Both of those things together is what you get results with. And don't just talk about it. Don't come up with problems. People complain so much. Like I'm so tired of hearing the complaining and the pity, like, build a plan. Don't come to me with problems. Come to me with solutions and plans. Felicia, I'll ask you that. You've begun to say that about how people get together. And I, by the time we finish, I want to know uh, of your court experience, but, but what are, what are the, what are the solutions? Because I think I'm, I'm observing, I'm observing someone's journey when you've touched on in regards to how you view prison and then suddenly you were in there and how your views then maybe changed. I don't want to put words in your mouth. What, what are the, what are the solutions? Who is, who is listening to you? Which of your friends is listening to you? Which of family is listening to you? Who has said, I don't want to talk to you. Which, uh, what new friends have you found? Talk to me about that. What are the solutions here? So what I maybe be a bit more specific solutions to what problem? The solutions to one, how we, how you fix things, fix the justice issues here, how you then wake people up to what's going on. You've, you've touched on. Those are some serious questions for one person. I don't have all of those solutions. (laughs) That's going to be a, I think potentially our previous speaker would have some educational uh, game plans for that. A, A lot of people don't understand too is, I was working, I lost both of my jobs, which is why I'm also speaking out to fundraise for myself to pay my bills, to sustain life while I'm in prison and to get my children to safety while I'm in prison. Mm. Um, As soon as I was charged and sentenced in DC and returned home, I returned back to my two ER ICU jobs and was fired immediately, terminated um, due to having a felony now. So my were, there was no, there was no, um, there was no negotiation. There was no, no. sitting down and understanding uh, no. why or what you've been through. Nothing. No, because like that. they were forced by corporate. So someone had contacted. They had known that I had pending charges, but I was very good at my job. So they kind of said, "Well, legally, you're not charged. Legally, your background check is still clear. Right. So we're going to keep you on because we really need you and we we love you." As soon as I was legally charged, someone contacted corporate, corporate contacted local management, didn't give them a choice. I knew that. They knew that. I didn't ask questions. I just shook my head and walked out. 
you can't and that's that's another thing is the repercussions of this are so great my entire schooling my entire career that i've done the entirety of my life is now almost in void because no one in the medical field hires anybody with felonies and i now have a felony i couldn't afford meat at the store i would go out and hunt to have meat in the freezer i cannot do that anymore I cannot teach my son's gun safety. There's a lot of repercussions from this that are just, it is what it is. But that is why I'm speaking out about what has happened to me. That's why I'm spreading awareness. Like that's why finally now there's still the threat of it may come back on me, but I've already been sentenced. So that threat has drastically decreased versus previously in the last three years, I was terrified to speak because it's just me. Like my children have just me. There is no family. There is like, it's me. So that's a lot of weight. So having going to work, my day would look like something like this, which is why I don't have the, the solution to those problems completely. Those are very big issues that you raised. Not my single self is going to have a hundred percent game plan start to finish to resolve those things. That's going to take a lot of people and a lot of planning and education because it can't be physical it has to be legal and it has to be strategic um, and it has to be the same way they're playing, which we're not good at. <laughs> That's like. But, but earlier in our conversation, you, you talked about going to your town hall meetings, maybe yes. going to alluding That's... to going to the school board, alluding yes. to people getting off their backside. Learning and... the law would be a good start. Right. If the, the the law of the land is a good start, like you need to know factually, you can't have opinions. Opinions don't matter. You need to know the facts and you need to be able to articulate them. You need to show up at places of importance repeatedly. We have a lot of passion and we'll show up one time at something and then we get tired and then we get lazy and then we fall back into our comfort of our nice little home that we pay a ridiculous amount of taxes on. Mm. And I don't know if, it, it sucks that people are going to have to, like, you have these comforts now. Don't wait until they're completely stripped from you to act. Like, and that's what people are doing. Um, and we just get lazy and we don't plan. We have all these opinions, but you need to plan. You need to show up. You need to do it repeatedly. Because if you're a squeaky wheel and you squeak two times, you're just going to be like, ah, I hear that. And it stops. But if you squeak every single time you continue to squeak, you'll get reaction and people don't aren't doing that. I think it's important at this moment to say, how can people support you? How can they support you? How can they yeah. find you? Is that some just just uh, explore that? How can they do yeah, that? So it's been tricky because for the last three years, I have been censored and banned off of excessive amounts of things due to being listed on multiple groups. Um, like a terrorist, um, which is real, even though I have no qualifications on that list. So I've been banned off of like Stripe, PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, trading apps, Fidelity, Gibson, Go, I was banned off once, um, Robinhood, Webull, Airbnb, Facebook, Instagram, everything oh. will ban me as soon as I make an account. I have remade accounts. I'm on my second Give, Send, Go because they changed their payment processor, which was Give, Send, Go let me have an account, but their payment processor banned me and took all the money, which happened about a couple years ago. Recently, I just made another Give, Send, Go, and that has been okay so far. Um, and I'll switch my name on things. So 
um, and new emails and stuff, but it's, it's crazy. And that's why I say to get off media. Cause a lot of people put a lot of weight on that and they can't, you need to have physical connections, like write letters, meet up in your neighborhood with people. Um, my give, send, go currently is, um, I think it's www.givesendgo.com backslash Felicia one, two, three. Right. Okay. Can you just repeat that again? Just repeat that again. Yep. It's givesendgo.com backslash Felicia one, two, three. And it's F E L I C I A and the letters one, two, three. And that's, that's what I'll use to try and survive. I'm after being fired. I never, so my, my daily life looked like, um, I'd, go to work. I worked overnights because I did not want to be away from my children. I have and dealt with a lot of PTSD, um, finding out you're pregnant in prison and being there for so long and having the judge tell you you're looking at 36 years. Um, the entirety of my pregnancy, I envisioned giving birth in prison and having this baby I planned for and wished for ripped away from me, um, and never seeing my elder child again. So being able to hold him when I gave birth was monumental, but then I dealt with a lot of PTSD where I would not physically be able to be apart from him, but I needed to survive. So I came up with working overnight as soon as he was able to sleep through the night. So I would go to work I'd work 13, 14, 15 hours straight overnight with no breaks in the ER and ICU. I would return home. Um, I couldn't find a job in the city I live in. So I was working two hours away in a neighboring city. So I would drive two hours to work, work my overnight shift, drive two hours back home, get back home, make breakfast for the kids, homeschool them, do the chores. Um, I have a little homestead to feed us with fruits, veggies, and eggs. Um, and then I'd go back to work and do it again. And I'd work 60, 70, 80 hours a week doing that. And that was to survive. Um, and so losing that now and throughout the process for the last three years of battling this legally, um, I had to travel to view discovery. I had to travel to meet with any attorneys. I had to travel to go to sentencing and to plead everything. And that's out of pocket. And they don't care if you can't feed yourself or you don't have electricity. They don't care. You need to show up or that you'll be rounded up by the marshals and sit in prison, which a lot of people still are. So I opened up for the last three years, every possible credit card I've been able to, and I have completely maxed them out and overdrawn them. And so that's leading me up to my current time where now I will, I'm trying to figure out how to um, pay past two bills, pay future bills, uh, pay for travel for my children and necessities for them while I'm away and on home confinement. And then I've been uh, excessively searching for a job that I can do while also having my children a, because I need to be present for them. That's very important for their psychological development, um, baseline and B I can't afford childcare. So there's two factors there. Um, and so trying to find a job that will hire you as a felon that will be able to keep me with my children and also support to pay enough to cover the bills. Um, is quite a task. And I know a lot of people do struggle with some of those factors on a daily basis, but having all of those factors has been an interesting challenge. I'm going to 
I, I just have to say this because this is extremely, it's very humbling to sit here and listen to your story because this isn't entertainment, right? This isn't about filling two hours nearly of people's lives just to entertainment. This is your life. This is the reality of the situation. This is the reality of when Kamala Harris turns around and says, this is a threat to our democracy. We are not a democracy, you're a representative constitutional republic. And I get fed up with reminding these idiots yeah. and they're supposedly in power. And then they say, you know, this is the biggest attack on us, you know, saying it worse than 9-11. That's another subject, you know, and uh, et cetera, Pearl Harbor and all the rest. Felicia, seriously, you are an, in, an inspiration. Um, well, I don't want it to be so inspiring. I, I unfortunately hear a lot of people say, I can't believe this is happening. Mm. And that's, that's their thing. If they cannot believe it, yeah. so they don't acknowledge it. Yes. And this, yes. these are facts. I'm not exacerbating. No, I'm you're not. not. No, no, not. You're not. These are a hundred percent transparently honest mm. things. Mm. Um, mm. And so I, I just, and I don't know how to really deal with that when people say, no, I can't believe this is happening in our country. I can't do it. And then that's it. They just don't believe it. Like, oh, I did hear of that, but there's no way that could actually be true. But it's the life I live every single day and night. Like I don't sleep because I can't like, and I'm just here dealing with it. And so it's, it's just frustrating when people do say that, but then on the counter, I have met people through this that are very nice when I was pregnant and I couldn't eat or leave my house or do anything, um, I was losing weight, very sick. And there was people that at times would network from a different state and would network to have people drop off groceries to me so that I could eat. And that was, that was amazing. And that is the type of like stuff that like keeps like hope and like keeps me pushing forward. The, the provision that they gave you, um, let's go back to your court case. We've got the last uh, eight minutes. Let's go back to your court case. So you have been sentenced for how long? So it was honestly a bit of a miracle. There's a lot of things in my life. I have very, not the best look, but sometimes there are shines of very good luck, like having a fatal, fatal accident, for, like um, forensic photos taken, and then discharging myself from the hospital, unable to eat or see two days later. Um, this is one of them. And everyone was shook because upon arriving to DC, I met with my attorney and he's a very transparent, very logistical, very talented guy. And he said, I want to be real with you. If you get between six months and four years, that will be a miracle. And he said, that's what I'm praying for. Um, the prosecutor during the sentencing reamed me. I'm not al allowed to show any unincriminating evidence, but he gets to show all yeah. of the yeah. Yeah. edited hor yeah. horrific stuff. Mm -hmm. So he reamed me the whole time. I had letters, um, character letters that I had gotten from people that said some very heavy stuff that I've done for others in my life because it brings me joy to be able to be selfless and do stuff for other people, even at my own demise. So this is a time that came in handy. Um, I had letters from helping give birth to a stillborn baby for, for a person. 
I had letters from hundreds of NICU baby mothers that I donated breast milk to while my child was infant. I had an extensive list of very heavy things that the judge read and commented on. He commented on those letters prior to his sentence, saying the sentence, and he commented on my address to the court, which I read to them. Um, he had his mind made up of six months or additional. After he read the letters, after he heard my address, he called an unplanned recess, left, came back, and he sentenced me to 45 days in prison and um, three months of home confinement. He looked at the prosecutor who previously said he would not accept anything under six months, factually. And he looked at the prosecutor and the he asked the prosecutor if he had any objections. And the prosecutor looked at me, looked down the ground and shook his head no. And my attorney, you could see his head explode. He had no idea why, because the judge I had was the one of the, if not the toughest judges in all the January 6th cases. So you, you've got, they gave you three months of house arrest and then you're going in prison for three months. Please, okay. sorry if I haven't got that well, right. 40, 45 days in prison. Right. When do you start that? So anytime between now and April 1st. Just I have to, I'm waiting for them to send me a letter. When they arrested you and you were in, uh, you were in jail, how long were you in jail for when they about, arrested you? About two weeks. Right. So they don't take that off. In regard I to... asked them. I don't. I don't quite know. I know the home confinement I was on previously does not count towards anything, which well. is not my favorite thing. Um, and I asked about the prison time I served counting towards something, um, but I don't know. Hmm. I don't know if the judge decides that or if the prison decides that. But I. I did ask that in court. I also asked if I'd be able to potentially serve weekends. Um, so I could stay kind of with my children, um, and that was declined. So, so you were you were arrested on February the tenth, um, two thousand and twenty-one. When was your court date? When were you sentenced? I don't know the exact day, to be honest with you. Due to that, so when I had that motor vehicle accident, I had severe brain trauma and a TBI. So my right. memory is very bad. I know it was recently. I want to say a month ago a little maybe two months ago um because i did my i pled guilty a few months ago and then uh, maybe a month later two months then i got sentenced right okay um what support are you going to have in regard to looking after your youngest child well both your children when you are in prison for 45 days yeah so since i don't have support of family it's a lot. It's a lot to ask somebody to take care of children as if they were their own for over a month and a half. It's, right. That's a lot. Um, I found a family that shares. I also live a very like holistic life. So I don't do screen time. I don't do cry it out. I'm very present um, yeah. outside all the time. So I, I was hoping to find someone that, even aligned with that a little bit. Um, I was lucky enough to, there was a family that when I was pregnant hosted like a little tiny baby shower for me. And they're so nice. Um, they live in a different state now across the country and they reached out and said, we have three to four kids. I think they have four kids of their own. Um, 
and they said, we have our kids, we can't financially support them, but she bakes her own food. She agrees with like not giving them a bunch of sugar or sitting them in front of the TV. Um, and so she said, we'd be willing if you're able to, she's like, I don't want to ask you to financially support them. Cause I know that's a lot. She's like, but if you can, I would be more than happy to take them in while you're away and love them as if they're my own and give them back to you. Cause there's a lot of people that want my kids, which is funny. They say, Oh, I'll, I'll adopt them. And I'm like, no, I don't No, they're, they're coming. I don't they're want coming. you to take my, I don't want, I don't want to lose my children and I don't want to give them away. So she spoke to me, um, in great detail. And I've written out all of the care things before my sentencing. So I originally had a family and then they said, actually, like, it's not going to work. I don't think it'd be good. We're not in good times. Like, and they said they cannot. And that was last minute. So it was last minute that she stepped up and she said, no, like, I love you. I love your kids. I will treat them on my own. Like I'll be here for you. She's like, I just can't financially support them. Um, which is realistic. Like it's hard having three, four kids hmm. and trying to find work and then adding on one, two more. So she actually flew down the day before I had to fly out to Washington DC to sign legal documentation. Cause I didn't know if I was going to be taken from that courtroom to prison. So when I went to sentencing, I had to pack a sitter's bag and I had to pack, um, I don't know, like a go bag or like a travel bag in case I, and I wrote a letter in case I were to never see them again for an undisclosed well, amount of time. I Cause I didn't know how long I was going to be sentenced for. And I didn't know if I'd be taken from the courtroom, which was very hard. So she flew down red eye the day prior, met me somewhere, signed legal paperwork and flew right back to her kids. Right. Um, I don't really want to end this conversation, but I'm having to because of time. Um, but it's, I cannot thank you enough for joining me um, for this uh, for this hour. I mean that. I think I've listened to some of. Uh, yeah, I you've just shut me up basically quite right. I rightly. told you. You said try and and we have. You said we have an hour. That's plenty. And I was yeah. like, I know. <laughs> but no, uh, I appre I appreciate that. Could you just thank you? Could you just remind everyone where they can help you? Your gifts and go. Can you just say that again? Yeah, so it's givesendgo.com backslash Felicia123. Right. I'm not going to ask you what state you are in. We can communicate offline. And then um, if I can think of, because I know a, a number of people over there, if to to get people to help um, and uh, raise awareness, then I will personally do that. And I'm going to encourage you to say, when you're quoting Abraham Lincoln, fantastic, please write, please write this story. Please uh, talk about this. I'm going to try. Book. Yeah. A lot of people have told me to write a book because you've heard a tiny yes. little glimpse of the last three years, but that it continues for the entirety of my life. <laughs> I know. I know it's, it's not fictional because, um, I know it was some time ago, um, but get the film out. I'll find the film Aaron Brockovich and watch that, right? Um, about her fight and fighting uh, water, poisonous water in a rural community. Once you watch the film, then let me know. You'll understand the point I'm, yeah. I'm making. And I also wrote down all of the books you guys were previously speaking about in this hour. <laughs> right. Well, that's kind. Um, when 
I, I talk to you because I I would love to have the privilege to interview you on my other on my own podcast channel as well. Just stay there because I just want to address everyone on your behalf and just say that because um, I think everyone listening, watching, if you're listening live and then you go to this program, and there's a lot of information that's gone out there that uh, Connecting the Dots stands for in regard to getting the truth out there. Um, I think you would totally agree with me that when you are listening to Felicia and what she has been through, um, you cannot be uh, just not be moved by it because this is real. This I say this from the UK. I love America to bits. I'm as frustrated about about it as Felicia is in in saying to people, yes, it is the last bastion of freedom and what it stands for, but actually in many ways has it already gone. And she's raising a very, very good point. At the beginning of this show is the 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 introduction, the music, the graphics are very, very powerful. And every time I listen to that, I have to say to you that a tear does well up in my eye because I know I have a lot of friends over there. I know, you know, and been to a number of the different states and you trying to get your head around and understanding what America is and what it stands for. I am grieving and I know others are, but we're from the outside of your country. And uh, please support Felicia. It's Sorry? Eerie. I said it's very yeah. eerie because I'm yeah. Jewish. So one of my favorite things in history to study was the Holocaust. Right. And having studied that and read Anne Frank's diary, being Jewish, and then being rounded up and hunted down by your own government at gunpoint, like it's... It's real. And uh, well, bless you for saying that because I didn't, I didn't know that. But in this present, in this present climate, uh, yes, this is this is real, Felicia. I cannot thank you enough, um, and I would love to get you on my own podcast and and continue this conversation. I'm, I'm sure that Dan would love you to come back and others others. While before uh, going into going into jail, I just asked really encourage everyone to uh, keep Felicia in your prayers as as well, and my um, children, and and your children. Sorry. Thank That's you very okay. much. There's the adjustment for them. Yeah. I think I think the other thing is is that we uh we need to be encouraged that there are other young young people that are actually uh standing up for their beliefs and their fight. They've been put in positions that they would never have dreamed of, that we would never have asked them to be in that position. We didn't ask them to do that. They were going along to exercise their constitutional rights. Dumper, I think that's the end of the show, nearly. I think James is uh, about to join us. But Felicia, thank you so much again. I cannot thank you enough for that. And thank everyone for joining us. I will see you soon. From the lakes of Minnesota To the hills of Tennessee Across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, and New York to L.A., where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say. I'm
Cause there ain't no doubt 